0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.
1: Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme... On her way to Christchurch in 1850, Charlotte Godley wrote to her mother of her short but enlightening stay in Dunedin. And Barraclough reads extracts. Richard Stedman tells the story of a strong bullock accustomed to harness and his momentous ascent of the then slippery and steep Bell Hill. A remarkable Dunedin benefactor whose imposing legacy, Ulverston, delights locals and visitors alike had a great love for tramping and mountaineering. Judy Southworth talks of Dorothy Theoman and reads from one of the many evocative letters Dorothy wrote of her mountain crossings. And Gregor Campbell has more from Alf Hanlon's memoir. Charlotte Godley, her husband John Robert Godley, founder of Christchurch, three-year-old son Arthur, and three servants came to New Zealand in 1850. On the way, they spent a fortnight in Dunedin, the godly staying with Captain Cargill. Charlotte, who was then 29, describes Dunedin and its people in Letters to Her Mother, published as Letters from New Zealand, 1850 to 1853. Anne Barraclough reads extracts from these, and the views are those of Charlotte's and not of the Southern Heritage Trust.
2: Tuesday we were all up early and in great spirits, with a fair wind blowing straight into the harbour, and at noon in we came at a great pace. The entrance is very narrow, as there are sandbanks covered at high water, which run nearly across the bay. But it is so beautiful, it is eight miles from the point up to Port Chalmers, which is a little bay in the harbour, and there Lady Nugent is now lying, in a perfect nest of beauty." and as snug as a ship can be. We were hungry enough to stay on board till we got some dinner, and then such a walk on shore. At Port Chalmers there are about a dozen little wooden houses, and after walking a little way through the wood above the port, we came upon such a salt water lake, as clear as crystal, with the same sort of wooded cliffs all around, and pieces of rock standing down into the water like old towers, the colouring of which would drive you quite distracted, every shade of bright yellow and brown, and the foliage is very beautiful and so foreign, there is not one tree the same as any we have at home. The fern tree is very like the palm, with its bunch of leaves on the top, but very different in leaf from anything I have ever seen. There is every sort of wild bird's note too, still to be heard in the woods, I believe even the parrots sing instead of screaming, and somebody shot two most beautiful little lovebirds. I cannot describe one half of what we saw or felt at being once again on land. Any place would have looked beautiful to us just then, but it really is lovely, and would be still more so if we could still get a peep at any of the high hills which we saw from the sea. The captain, with all his papers... Rode off to the town as soon as we had anchored, and returned in the evening with Captain Cargill, the New Zealand Company's agent here, who came to pay his respects and to press us most kindly to come up and stay with him at the town until the ship is ready to sail again which we were very glad to do as it is a most disagreeable time to spend on board and almost all the people about constantly drunk in a little place like that where our arrival is quite an event. I must tell you though that I am writing from Dunedin now on Easter Eve. We came up on Wednesday in a little open boat wind and mist dead against us, a most uncomfortable sail of nearly five hours and are now located very comfortably in a weatherboard house, the front of which came out as it is from England. It consists of six rooms, three bedrooms, a pantry, a kitchen and sitting room, in which I am now writing, and it is a very comfortable abode for anywhere. It is weatherboard all round, but coated with single brick at the windy end and rough cast, and the inside is lined, or as we should say, panelled, only roughly done, but with a pretty coloured wood, something like very dark box, which takes a very good polish, if anyone had time to rub it at all. Quite an old-fashioned fireplace with dogs for burning wood, but there is coal eight miles off when they have time to fetch it, a grand pianoforte, a brass-inlaid clock red twill curtains and at least a dozen pictures in large gilt frames. Captain and Mrs Cargill landed here with the first settlers just two years ago and lived at first under canvas on the beach, under heavy rain for three weeks with two sons and three daughters and very rough work it must have been, but he is an old soldier and used to such things. Mrs Cargill has been, as she says, in the army all her life and a very pretty woman, very good-natured and just what I fancy the general style of army lady. It seems so curious to me to come across such a different set of people from those I have been used to. Captain Cargill is a funny-looking little old man with a very large head covered with thick upright white hair that has been red, which also forms a white frill under his chin. He is Presbyterian, the Free Kirk, and talks broad Scotch, and he is exactly like some of the old Covenanter fathers in families in Walter Scott's novels. I should think them a very nice family, but it seems strange to be with people who do not even know when Easter Sunday is. Though Mrs Cargill calls herself Episcopalian, all the others are Free Kirk. The situation of the town is of course very fine at the head of the harbour, which opens out wider, but it looks rather bare and new, the clearings leave stumps and bare burnt branches, but it will look very different when good grass etc. has time to grow, and the walks all about are most beautiful. There are perhaps 120 houses in the town, mostly of weatherboard, a little kirk, two butchers, three bakers, and other shops in proportion. I must say, it is most wonderful to see the progress made in two years. Out of the houses come such smart ladies and gentlemen, what with lawyers and doctors and surveyors, and go-to-meeting clothes on other classes, there are heaps of them. Indeed, the black spot in Dunedin, to me, is the state of society there. There is a Scotch and an English party, and half of them will not visit the other half or approve of anything that is done. I believe it is so more or less in all small communities. And here, Scotch and English, of course, makes a capital ground of offence. The whole place is at sixes and sevens. There are already a great number of people settled outside the town, up every little valley and along the beach too, and all well off. The poorest people have fresh meat at least once a day, but still there are plenty of grumblers. Altogether, it is much what I expected to find, except that I thought in a colony people would have been more friendly and fond of each other and less upon form. There is as much etiquette about visiting and so on At Dunedin, as I ever saw anywhere at home, and the shopkeepers, etc., all dress most expensively. We left Dunedin on the 4th and came back to Lady Nugent with the captain in his gig and sailed down under an impromptu piece of canvas in an hour and 20 minutes with a perfect gale in our favour. We saw several natives, but all dressed in coat and trousers, or else the universal blue shirt and belt round the waist. The women, too, had gowns, etc., and only a mat on the top of all. They are not at all bad-looking, although this is considered a very degenerative tribe compared to those in the Northern Ireland. There are only about a 160 in the settlement, and the chief is a wretched creature, generally quite drunk. The native village is down near the mouth of the harbour, and only the gentlemen were able to go and see it. But old Tyroa, the chief, heard very soon, long before their visit, that my husband, the captain of Port Cooper, as he called him, was in the town. So up he came to call upon him, in his state dress, white trousers, black swallow-tailed coat, striped black silk waistcoat and neckcloth, and white shirt and gloves with a stick. They say he has often eaten people, but that was long ago. He made his purpose very plain when he got to my husband. I come to you, and shook hands with us all around. Some of the natives are very well behaved and work very well when they are looked after, but they only get three shillings a day. White people actually get four shillings a day. The day after we got back from the ship, We devoted to paying a visit to the section which Mr Robeson has bought. He was one of our fellow passengers who is going to stay here. We came upon a little clearing, as it is called, which, with the house upon it, is a perfect paradise. It belongs to two Mr Carter's brothers, who are to be Mr Robeson's next neighbours, and quite young, with delicate health, who have come out here to enjoy themselves on a small income. The house is built of fern tree split, which last very long here and look something like rough bits of scotch fur with the bark on only much better and are then plastered inside and papered. They have chosen a very good plan, something like a pretty lodge. There is a very nice sitting room with a bow window and such a view all over the harbour at the prettiest part and one bedroom with another bow – a small kitchen at the back and a large porch which makes a sort of hall and a loft overhead and that is all the house. They seem very nice people with all sorts of books about and some pictures and great regard to taste and neatness throughout. All the woodwork is very nicely done in white pine and dark red ditto which is a very handsome wood and takes a very good polish. Having no servant... They take alternative weeks to be cook and housemaid themselves. They have not tried either agriculture or even keeping a cow, as they find plenty to do as yet, and the garden is a picture of neatness and quite refreshing and English-looking. There was not one so well kept up in the town. We then went on to a cottage which Mr Robeson has engaged a room in, "'till his house is up, and my husband shot a pigeon, "'one of those beautiful wild ones which we instantly cooked and ate "'with potatoes and cabbages, which are both super excellent here. "'The owner of the cottage came out from Dalkeith 18 months ago "'with a wife and two children "'and landed with 30 shillings sixpence in his pocket. "'He has now this comfortable cottage, "'a garden with plenty of potatoes in, "'and has more than a £100 owing to him.' for work done in the colony. Port Chalmers is certainly a beautiful place, but I cannot admire its inhabitants. They are a very drunken set. We sailed out on the 8th, having been anchored a fortnight, all but a day, and had a most lovely day for our start. In 1853, the family, now including daughter Rose, returned to England, where three more daughters were born. Charlotte died in January 1907, aged 85. I am Anne Barraclough reporting for Heritage Matters.
1: They carved the landscape with pick and shovel, gained land from the sea, garnished it with their blood, sweat and toil, raised their families and called their place Dunedin. But few today appreciate how heavy the labour that created a legacy. Modernists call this place Dunners, They pipe of bushwalks and cycleways, but overlook the endurance of those pioneers who built a stone city. Among the dauntless was Bob the Bullock, who drew the first wheeled vehicle along the route we now call Princess and George Streets. Richard Stedman tells
3: the story. When the first settlers arrived in March 1848, Dunedin was an isolated outpost with a few simple cottages. The site was dominated by a long range of hills running north and south known as the Kaikarai Ridge, with spurs running down to the tidal flats. One of these ran toward the harbour ending in a high hill which projected to the shoreline and cut the settlement in half. Early surveyors designated this as Church Hill, but a time bell later located there gave its name to Bell Hill. Movement from south to north involved a trek by foot over a very steep slope or around its base beside the water. Neither of these options were suitable for wheeled traffic and because of this, the township developed in the area now called the Exchange. Princess Street halted abruptly near Dowling Street as the flank of the hill steepened. From there, it was distinguished by a survey line on each side and stumps of trees here and there, and for a time a sledge drawn by a pair of bullocks became the not-infrequent sight on the hill. In his book, Fifty Years' Sign, a jubilee memorial of the Presbyterian Church of Otago, 1848-1898, the Reverend James Chisholm records the first use of a wheeled vehicle to traverse Dunedin from the exchange to North East Valley in 1850. He writes, A cart had been bought by one of the Philip Lang passengers, but remained in dead stock for about three years. It could neither be used nor sold. At last, mine host of the Royal Hotel made an offer for the cart and got it at his own price. He had a somewhat doughty customer in the North East Valley who was in possession of a strong bullock and accustomed to the harness called Bob. Ere long he became the owner of the bullock as well as the cart. The day was fixed for inaugurating wheel traffic to Princess Street. It was a great event. People came from all parts of the town, and many were the speculations as to the capabilities of the bullock. He started with utmost ease, as to the manor born. But Bell Hill, that steep, slippery ascent in the line of the street, he would never get up there. Half a dozen men followed the cart, ready to put their shoulders to the wheel but their help was unneeded. The slow-footed animal moved patiently up. A ringing cheer greeted him when he got to the top of the hill and began to descend to the northern slope. He managed to take the empty dray over, and now the question was, would he be able or willing to bring a load back again? People were restless. Speculation was rife. The suspension became great as the slow hours passed by. At length, all doubt was allayed when the bullock came into view over the crest of the hill about five o'clock in the evening with half a cord of firewood bought all the way from the valley. By the time the hotel was reached, a large crowd had gathered and there was much rejoicing over the beginning of wheeled traffic in Dunedin, and Bob's achievement became history. Reverend Chisholm gives us an insight into the difficulties faced by the fledgling community. Eight years later, in 1858, the Dunedin Town Board arranged for a 20-foot-wide cutting to be made through the hill, and although this made movement from one part of the town to the other possible, it became notorious for its deep mud and its hazards for pedestrians. During the 1860s, Bell Hill was lowered, and today its height can be estimated by looking at First Church in Burns Hall. Viewed from the bottom of Burlington Street... The hill was as high as the top of the roof of Burns Hall and half the height of the roof on the nave of the church itself. It ran out from the area of city rise into the harbour before ending abruptly at the water's edge near the Leviathan Corner. The cliffs behind First Church rise to about half the original height of the hill. To gauge the magnitude of the undertaking which carved the hills and created the flat, the top of the Dowling Street steps gives us a good vantage point above the roofs of the shops to contemplate the scale of the work, estimate the depth of the cutting that became Printer Street and imagine Bob the Bullock as he introduced wheeled traffic to Dunedin. Note also the depth of the Dowling Street cutting toward the junction with the Ratray Street cutting. Richard Stedman for Heritage Matters.
1: Mention the name Theamin in Dunedin, and people automatically think of Olverston, the grand home the family left to the city. Less well-known is the achievement of daughter Dorothy Theamin, who was one of New Zealand's pioneering female mountain climbers. This report from Judy Southworth.
0: Dunedin has good reason to be most grateful to the Theoman family, and in particular, daughter Dorothy. The family home she willed to the city on her death has proved to be a very popular city attraction. Dorothy Michalis Thurman was born in Dunedin in 1888 and educated at Bremer in Murray Place, a school run by the Miller sisters. Dorothy travelled abroad with her parents and from 1902 to 1905 attended the Rodean School for Girls, a progressive school in Sussex. On the family's return to Dunedin, The newly completed Ulverston was the talk of the town. Its 35 rooms and seven servants made it ideal for entertaining and the various enterprises the Theomans undertook. Dorothy played golf, rode and climbed, her focus being the Southern Alps. As an asthmatic, she found the West Coast climate helped her condition. As a member of the New Zealand Alpine Club, she made an impressive number of climbs and transits between 1914 and 1933. Here's an extract from a letter she wrote to her parents in 1926 on a camping trip she'd taken on the Fox Glacier and the Franz Josef Glacier. My dear family, since I sent my wire saying we were going camping to the Fox, I've had one of the most wonderful and delightful experiences of my life. Alex and young David Graham, his nephew, took me for a five-day trip, starting from here to Weheka by motor, in itself a sufficiently thrilling experience, and ending up by going to the head of the fox and crossing a path to the Franz Joseph. We left here last Thursday and camped one and a half miles up the fox. The men carried a tent and fly, three blankets and masses of food, To give you an indication of how much the bread supply was three and a half whole loaves, 18 eggs, two and a half pounds of prunes, tea unlimited and sugar, which towards the end got rather scarce. Our first camp was on the moraine of a glacier. A roaring fire just below the camp kept us out of bed until ten o'clock on a beautiful moonlit night. Next day we went on a high camp at about 4,500 feet on Chancellor Ridge, a divine place well worth the struggle up steep creek bed and scrub. The view of the huge mountains and also bush, river bed, and ocean is gloriously beautiful and of course one is right on top of an enormous glacier, larger than the Franz Joseph. Next day was not a very strenuous one as the following day's journey had to be long. We went to the top of Chancellor Ridge and sat there for hours taking in the glorious view. Our last actual camp in the tent was only about three or four hundred feet lower than the top of the ridge to enable us to get away before daylight next morning. It was glorious, high up in the world with a wonderful misty sunset showing over the sea and brilliant moonlight as soon as the sun went down. We struck camp and left by candlelight about 5.30 next morning, and saw the magnificent sunrise from the top of the ridge. If my many photos turn out well, you will understand all my ecstasies much more clearly. We crossed to the Franz Joseph snowfields, followed the latter for hours and gorgeous weather and scenery, until finally we joined up with the Graham saddle route, and so in an hour or so to the Alma bivouac. The latter felt quite like home, though rather a poor substitute for Ulverston. Two cups of cocoa were very cheering, though really I was very little tired. The next day was even more wonderful than the previous, and we sat for hours in the sun, going back to the Elmer by a different route, ten hours out that day, only about six of which were energetic, and eleven and a half hours the day before, mostly fairly solid going. On Tuesday we came through from the Elmer. One cannot come through the glacier to defiance as it's too broken up, so instead take the same steep grass and rock slope as Peter took us up two years ago, landing out on the north bank of the glacier. We went across to the north bank of the glacier, all in pouring rain, and some good hot tea and bread and jam, and then through the icefall to Waiho, thus ending one of my greatest experiences from your loving Dorothy. Dorothy was also a respected mountain photographer, and Olverston has such on display. From 1933, she was the sole survivor of her family, and she continued the philanthropic activities of her family. From 1939 to 45, she was active in the Red Cross. From 1935 to 1953, she was on the executive of the Plunkett Society. She kept the Theoman Trust on for cultural, educational and charitable purposes. She encouraged young adult artists and musicians with financial backing and was active in the administration of the Dunedin Art Gallery. In October 1966, Dorothy Theoman died, leaving her house and its contents in trust to the citizens of Dunedin. She was buried in the family's spot in the Jewish section of the Southern Cemetery. The full letter is held at the Hocken Library. This is Judy Southworth.
1: During a 50-year career, Dunedin barrister and solicitor Alf Hanlon believed the advocate's calling was that of an artist. He quoted Shakespeare, often at length, and he made it his business to understand clients, juries and judges, acquiring a reputation as an outstanding, witty and clever defender. Gregor Campbell has another extract from Alf Hanlon's memoir.
4: When I had earned some little reputation as a jury advocate, I found that the leaders of the bar in Dunedin frequently briefed me as their junior in civil cases and in practically every instance, they did me the honour of asking me to deliver the final address to the jury in addition to examining some of the witnesses. It was a courtesy for which I had reason to be profoundly grateful as it afforded me valuable opportunities of studying and developing the art of advocacy. Nor was it only the openings made for me in court for which I was thankful. There was much to be learned also in the numerous conferences which I had with my learned and experienced leaders, whose example and advice were an education that, as a junior, I appreciated greatly. There was another barrister who was also elevated to the Supreme Court bench, who gave me briefs in some of his cases, one of which I'll mention because of an amusing incident in connection with it. A woman was suing a company for damages under the Fatal Accidents Act in respect of the death of her husband, who had been killed in an accident as a result of the negligence of the company. The action was brought on behalf not only of the widow, but also of a young child of the deceased. My learned leader left the final address to the jury in my hands and suggested that I should make the best possible use of the mother and child angle when I came to the sob stuff. The evidence had been very lengthy, And after traversing it fully with a view to securing a verdict, I turned to the question of damages. I referred to some of the arguments of our opponents and then drew a picture of the wealthy company trying to save every possible shilling by using faulty gear regardless of the lives of its workmen, with the result that this unfortunate man had been killed, leaving the widowed mother and the orphaned child to face the world alone. I invited the jury to visualise for themselves The broken little home, rendered cheerless and lonely by the great company's negligence. I asked them to picture the broken-hearted mother's grief as she sat by the fire in the evenings, with the child at her breast, looking through a mist of tears into the little face as the mite fell asleep, starting in hope at every passing footstep, but, alas, remembering what damages could compensate. When the jury retired, my leader and I went into the robing room where he said, Well, old man, that was a great speech you made, and I think we'll get a good verdict. I like that part where you rung in the broken-hearted mother with the babe at her breast. It's a good thing you didn't know that the kid isn't hers.
1: This programme, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7pm, is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand. Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters program.
4: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the Air.